Coming up, readings beyond the raffle and Theoryland approved conjecture. Deep dive into the spells and scrolls of nerd culture. Absorb Stormlight. Home sympathy. Arnas, Sayadar, and Sayadin. This is Phantology. You may have heard of us. All right, what's up, breakers and burners? This is Phantology Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen, and I have Ryan on with me today. Ryan, how's it going? Good. Glad to get back into first law. Back into first law, and it may be a little bit of a break until the next time we, we do have more <laughs> first law. Uh, and before we go any further, we have a special guest. We have half of the Friends Talking Fantasy podcast, the one and only Charles. Hello, Phantology and Phantology fans. It is an absolute pleasure to be here. And what an honor to be invited on the Wisdom of Crowds book discussion. I, I feel very, uh, very fortunate. Thank you. Well, you've been feeling fortunate for several months now, Charles, because you and I have been talking about doing something together. And uh, Wisdom of Crowds was the one that we both had circles on, on our calendar. So we've both been looking forward to it for a long time. And it's here and now it's red and in our rearview mirror, but, but we need to talk about it. Yeah, we knew this day was coming for months now. So it's very exciting that we're actually here after all of this planning and preparation. It actually went right. Something that maybe some of our Abercrombie fans wouldn't expect. <laughs> it didn't feel like that long since um, The Trouble with Peace came out. Did it feel like a long time for you guys? Mm, it's They came out like a year apart, I think. Yeah. Um, yep. But I didn't start reading uh, The Age of Madness until just like... A few months ago so oh, okay. um i read through all of it in one shot which was very fortunate for me i didn't have to wait at all uh but you know the other friend of friends talking fantasy my co-host dylan he's like read the age of madness a bunch of times so i'm sure for him he would say that uh it's he's been very excited to get into it and been anticipating this release for a long time as i'm sure many people have well i am the og member of phantology to read first law i was the first one nice. there. That's, this is true that, that's um basically my claim to fame wow ryan that's impressive yeah dylan was the one who talked me into reading it uh, way back when when like the trilogy had just wrapped up so yeah no and it's been an absolute blast ever since yeah i don't i look i i think the recommendation is is great for any fantasy fans i'm glad that you read and recommended to me ryan I read them all within the last two years, and then I did a reread leading up to the the Wisdom of Crowds. So it doesn't feel like it's really been that long, but I think the intervening time before we get more first law is going to feel like a really long time. Yeah, <laughs> especially because Joe hasn't stated any specific plans on when he'll be coming out with the next book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think he's considering his options. Who knows what we're going to get, but I, I, he's not done writing, that's for sure. So I'm looking forward to whatever it is that comes next. And I think we can definitely talk about that. I did want to start with, well, maybe this disclaimer. We're, we're not going to do spoilers at first. Okay. So if you that's haven't good. read The Wisdom of Crowds yet, 
you can listen for a little bit, for a little bit. But then we are obviously going to do spoilers. Otherwise, this would be a really boring podcast. <laughs> so we'll just do like a few minutes of opinions. I, I don't know, like if you're tuning in, trying to gauge if you should read it or not. I don't know how many of these people exist out in the world. Like if you've read the Age of Madness thus far and you're not excited for the third book, I don't really know who you are. You, mm-hmm. you have to finish, obviously. So maybe that's all you yeah. have to listen to. And now you can stop listening and start reading. <laughs> But there's probably some curious people who want to read it and haven't gotten yeah, around to yeah. it yet that want to hear the scoop, you know, and you're going to get it, listeners. You're going to get it. So no worries. Don't worry about spoilers. <laughs> so, Charles, do you want to give us a little bit of a plug for Friends Talking Fantasy podcast? Tell us uh, how they can find you. And and I mean, maybe a, maybe a plug from my end is you guys just had a fabulous interview with the man himself, Joe Abercrombie, you. on your Thank show. You. <laughs> so listeners, if you are looking for more first slot content, look no further than Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast. Very, I mean, Stephen, I know how to follow up on that. Thank you so much. It's true. We, If you are a fan of First Law, uh, I find that you guys here on Fantology had some really great insight. That, like if you go back to the Blade itself and, and follow their episodes through it, it, it's very fascinating to see some of the things they came up with during their discussions there. Uh, but we have uh, very recently, one of our last episodes was an interview with Joe. So we're big uh, First Law fans as well. It's something our shows have in common. So we've collaborated a couple times and you, we recently had you guys on to do a fun First Law shenanigans episode. And that was a, a huge blast. So yeah, if you like fantasy books and you like Joe Abercrombie and you like Fantology, well, we, we uh, give us a try. That's we're, we're open to it. And uh, yeah, you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts at Friends Talking Fantasy. All right. Well, without further ado, let's get to it. So no spoilers yet. Still no spoilers, guys. If you spoil okay. something now, you're, you're kicked <sighs> off the show. It's good you said that because I was going to open with my reactions to the ending but i won't <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, th- I'm throwing you in the circle immediately if you spoil something and you're going up against logan so <laughs> no spoilers for the wisdom of crowds what is your just like general opinion of the book out of 10 how many how many numbers do you give it out of 10 mm-hmm. and you know how much did you like it uh what what types of things did you like or not like maybe well uh, i think i would give it probably an eight out of 10. I I feel like it's a typical Joe Abercrombie. I mean, this is the second ending. So we have two trilogies so far, complete trilogies in the first law universe. And they're similar in a lot of different ways because Joe Abercrombie, he's a a lot of people call him Grimdark. His Twitter handle is Lord Grimdark. So you come to expect that it's not going to be the happiest endings for our characters so once once you recognize that which i didn't necessarily understand when i first started reading it you love the books for what they are and the plot is fascinating the prose is great the twists and turns as you get there are uh, just have you on the edge of your seat. This book really pulls no punches. There's tons of action from beginning to end. You yes. will not be able to put it down if you are a fan of First Law. Now, if you're 
not a fan of grimdark and you want happy endings for all of your characters <laughs> which um i don't know if anybody, how'd you make it this far yeah, <laughs> in the trilogy? Um, you're, you might you might not enjoy the book quite as much as you would others maybe you should stick to some uh lighter lighter books uh, but i i think that it is a solid entry solid ending of the age of madness trilogy um, and I can definitely recommend it to any and all fans of Abercrombie. Yeah, yeah, that's really well said, Ryan. And yeah, I'm thinking about it now. I don't think I've ever given a rating to a book in my podcasting career. So, Ooh, uh, Joe, exciting, if you're listening, exciting. I'm going to give it a 10 out of 10. <laughs> <laughs> 10 out of 10, Joe. Uh, and Abercrombie I remember when Trouble with Peace ended I was like where is this other book gonna go there's a whole other book that is about to happen yeah and you know Abercrombie as an author continues to challenge himself as an author continues to challenge conventions of storytelling and of fantasy world building and he brought his world that he has built this government that he has built into this new realm of chaos and then and reading that it feels like you're really reading something that is like where is this going what is happening this like all is kind of up in the air right now and to me that was really fascinating to see I'm I'm torn if I liked it more than um, Trouble with Peace because I thought Trouble with Peace was a masterpiece but this was a very very strong contributor to the series and uh, I was a I was a huge fan and we'll get more into it. But if you're on, if you just want to know my thoughts, spoiler free, excellent end, very happy and highly recommend. So 10 out of 10 is your official rating. <laughs> 10 out of 10. Oh, wow. All right. All right. Doesn't get much better than that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it does not. <laughs> yeah. Joe, if you're listening, I also give it a 10 out of 10 uh, for, for non Joe's out there. I'm giving it an eight and a half out of 10, which that's still still very solid rating. I don't think Joe can complain too much. There's actually a really funny video of him uh, promoting the wisdom of crowds, reading one star reviews of some of his other books. Yeah. He on Twitter also, he always will share one star reviews, five star reviews. It's always funny. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You, You realize pretty quickly I'm sure you realize, Charles, having spoken with him, wh- why his books are so funny. Because, yeah, he, he's he's a comic genius out there, very yeah. darkly. darkly yeah, he was on comic. the whole time. Any time he could turn what we were talking about into a joke, he'd go for it. So you could tell <laughs> he, he he does definitely look for you know, the the humor and things, and yeah, it, it shows in his books. Because even though they are very like grim and violent they also have this kind of ironic humor about them really dry but also hilarious and so. did he have a pretty dark sense of humor on your show he would go there sometimes you know we we are friendly uh family friendly on ftf and we didn't have to you know <laughs> beep them out or anything but you know we were going there so uh, and he did an AMA on Reddit recently where they were mm-hmm. getting into some pretty uh, risque conversation, which was amazing, <laughs> by the way. But uh, yeah, yeah, he, he was, you know, respectable guy. But he, if you if you encouraged him, I think you'd go there. <laughs> mm-hmm. You didn't have to throw the uh, little E up on that episode. Nope, no E. <laughs> Family friendly for all those wondering at home. <laughs> yeah, my my review of Wisdom of Cads, I, I don't know if I have too much more to add to you guys as far as non-spoilers, at least. 
but I think it's a very Abercrombie book in that you're going to be unsatisfied in the most satisfying way, if that makes any sense Mm -hmm. by the end, by the end, you're going to have an ending that maybe you didn't know you wanted it until, until you did, until it was, until it was right there in front of you. At least that's how I felt. Mm -hmm. I would agree completely. It's, it's shocking and it's at times depressing, but it's always good. It's always well-written. So it's a fine line. Okay. There end the non-spoiler conversation part of the part of the podcast. Charles made it through. He's not at oh, I did it. circle. <laughs> now you we did will better do than Ben normally does. <laughs> oh, Ben can't keep it together for the spoiler free yeah. section. <laughs> He's just too eager. Uh, too so if eager. you haven't, if you haven't read yet, if you have not read yet, please stop listening. We do not want to be the cause of ruining your experience with the book. Go read it. Come back in. Give us, give us a listen for the second half. Well, maybe for the second three quarters or so of the podcast. So we will start the spoilers by asking you guys, what was your favorite part of the book? Just one thing, one moment, one aspect, one character, one, one thing, one thing that was your favorite. My sweet King Orso. That's what I was going to say. My my (laughs) prince, but he's not a prince. The king. Yeah, and, and um, they did him dirty, but I loved his character throughout the book. He was kind of he was just he was resigned to his fate, but I, I feel like he's just kind of like matured a lot, and um, you know he he had this this sense of like uh, dark irony, and he he has I, I felt like he was willing to forgive others, you know, like at the end he uh, at his hanging he was just like you know I, I i love my sister savine and like i don't hold this against you and you, this whole time you're reading it you're like she's gonna save she's gonna pull something out she's That's savine. What I she's was so thinking. capable she's yeah. gonna like you know soldiers are gonna storm in and they're gonna they're gonna but at the end of the day they didn't which is you know typical abercrombie and as much as I will miss Orso. I, he's he's one of my favorite characters, and um, he made this trilogy for me. And it's funny because when you started, I don't know about you guys, but when I started reading this trilogy, I did not like Orso. He was, you know, just kind of like just full on debauchery, <laughs> self self loathing, self loathing, and um, yeah. But he grew to be one of my favorite characters, um, if not my favorite character by the end of the book. I don't think he forgave Leo, though. The last line to Leo was, how's your leg? <laughs> yeah. He, oh, I mean, I, he definitely hates Leo for sure. For many good reasons. One being that he sentenced him to hang to death. But <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of other stuff that happened before that. But yeah. No. Oh, um, and one one crazy thing that I, I can't take credit for. I read somewhere else um if lee or if orso's dad hadn't have done the right thing or the merciful thing and then spared leo's grandpa remember leo's grandpa was the one who tried to organize uh or tried to steal the throne and giselle pardoned Mm -hmm. him or at least prevented him from hanging and then later on orso due to savine's uh, imploring him, he was merciful towards Leo and saved him from hanging. So there were two acts of mercy from members of 
uh, Duke uh, from Orso's family of the the Gisal line, Mm -hmm. which ultimately ended in Orso's death. So the theme I'm trying to get at is don't be merciful in the first law (laughs) universe. Well, if you can hang them, hang (laughs) them. Because if you don't hang them, they'll hang you. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, That's well said, Ryan. And you identified my favorite scene in this book, and that's Orso's hanging. And that comes from the this long three book payoff that I thought paid off at the end of Trouble with Peace when uh, Orso spared Leo. But then it comes back again when I wasn't expecting it when he was caught by Leo and hanged again. And I'm like, wow, here's like such a beautiful theme on doing the Mm. right thing. And here's a person who's going through genuine self-improvement and may objectively be like one, an ideal ruler for these people who genuinely cares about doing the right thing. And he just couldn't get anyone to trust him or like him or work with him. And, and just because you're noble and have all the right things going for you if politics are against you politics are against you you can't escape reality just because you have a good story and i think that's orso's tragedy and so well done the whole idea of him hating hangings from the beginning and then just how it describes you know he's trying to hold it together and you can tell he's really uh struggling but he sticks to his virtues at the end and then he just unceremoniously bam end of chapter so that's a fantastic scene. But since you took it, I'm going to quickly just say I loved Rika's <laughs> battle against uh, Black Calder. Uh, that whole, the way that whole battle played out, I thought was really fun and uh, very well written and well paced and not something I was expecting. I wasn't sure how she was going to turn it out. And uh, the reveal that she had sent some people away on purpose to send this bad reputation about herself out to Calder to mm-hmm. make her seem vulnerable what was really fascinating to me so that would be the one i'd have to pick how did you guys predict that i I saw some people saying that it was a predictable part of the book i so yeah i i thought it was too predictable i have to say Mm -hmm. i knew that there was something going on because i didn't think eastern really was like i'm done with you bye and would just Uh leave like that so i was like okay something's going on uh, but then the trap that was laid out so clearly for Calder, I still thought was well constructed with, because you add in the nail to that, which I wasn't totally sold on. You add in that spy element that you purposely let a spy spy on you uh, uh-huh. was interesting as well. I, I knew there was foul play going on. And I didn't expect her to lose, uh, but I didn't catch all those reveals. I actually mentioned I was talking to Ben about it over the weekend, and I did see a lot of that coming. Mm. Um, I didn't see what she was going to do with Stour because it was pretty clear that she was keeping him alive for a reason. I agree that. Um, And it was pretty ruthless of her to just kill him right in front of uh, right in front of Calder. (laughs) It's pretty awesome. (laughs) Incite his anger, but yeah, I don't think many tears were shed though. No, not <laughs> no. definitely not for Stour. He was he's a punk that Yeah, Rika has this really you didn't you didn't realize this about her until kind of those moments, but she had no problems playing this role that people expected of her as like, oh, she's a woman, she was thrust into power, she's kind of loopy and eccentric, and she's 
kind of timid. She like, if it was me, I would have killed Stella right away. And she's keeping him. She's trying to bargain. She's losing her friend. She doesn't have much. It's all part of that narrative that she built. Mm. She would have had no problems killing him. And she does the first chance she gets when the battle starts, which was a, a great scene. But uh, yeah, it's, and I think maybe she learned some of that from Shivers too. You can see for people that have read like all nine books going into this, 10 books technically, um, that, that have sat with Shivers, you know, he's not afraid to just sit in a role, but still act however he wants. So I think there's some lessons to be learned there and making your heart a stone, of course, which we've been following the whole trilogy as well. So it all came together in that moment really well with Stowers just falling off the cliff right in front of Calder. It was, uh, mm-hmm. it was a pretty great moment. Yeah. I think if Joe had just removed one line from this whole plot line, I would have been so much more satisfied which was when she told the nail that she wanted, like she had some special assignment for him and that ended the chapter. Mm. And that just put my, like that, that put my head on a swivel, like being knowing that something, okay, the nail's doing something. There's something important that's coming because look, you know, right here at the end of the chapter, she said it and there's no resolution. So, so there's going to be something important. And then, and then Rika started acting just way off the rails and it was it, it became unbelievable to me where I knew that there was something going on just if, if that one line wasn't there I, I think I would have that seed of doubt that thing. was planted in your head at that moment yeah it was, it was too much the seed was too <laughs> strong mm-hmm. all right Stephen let's hear your favorite part my favorite part was the whole part in in part nine the third part of the book the whole tower of chains sequence where the the trial starts Savine's trial starts and then, then gets interrupted by Leo coming in with the heroic charge that the, they're going to paint a, paint a picture of. And then uh, the her, Savine, and Orso get taken to the top of the tower by Broad. Broad saves them. They do this fight, very cinematic fight on top of the tower. Like I was picturing the whole thing and could not put the book down. And, and of course, <laughs> this was the perfect moment for Broad to, to finally decide to change because Savine tricked him with the fake letter, which I thought was brilliant and evil and cunning and, and very severe. Oh yeah. yeah. I was that, very suspicious yeah. of that letter from the beginning. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was like, how convenient. <laughs> and Orso once again, throws himself under the bus to buy more time for uh, Leo to get there. He mm-hmm. Tunny, Corporal Tunney is telling him we need more time. We need more time. So yeah. he goes off with those denouncements and he denounces himself last. Mm-hmm. Tension was so high for like pages and pages where I was just on the edge of my seat for so long. Like, I don't know of any other scene where I'm completely enraptured on the edge of my seat, wondering at any moment, like this could all unravel and go, go wrong. Just, yeah, this was the best part of the book. In my opinion, Joe did such a good job here of keeping me interested. Yeah. It's a great. Okay. Those are our favorite parts. So we'll, we'll have some time here to talk maybe more about some specifics of characters or any other things you guys want to pull out, but Before we do that, what was going into the book? And if you can think back to your mindset going in, what you were expecting, what you weren't, what hopes and fears you had, what was the most unexpected thing that happened in the wisdom of crowds? I I think, um, so I think there were two very unexpected things. I'll, I'll say one now. And then if nobody says my other one later, then I'll say it because I don't want to steal. So everybody said, or I, I've seen people say that um, Ish, or not Ish, Zuri being an eater and her brothers was both mm-hmm. predictable. 
It wasn't predictable for me. I didn't see that coming. Really? Yeah, I was very suspicious of Zuri the whole time. I, I didn't. Her brothers until... show up out of nowhere and have creepy smiles and like I she's got have. the okay. she's got the bandages wrapped around her a little bit. And, I, and I she's like the one person that. we're just assumed to trust from before the story starts. Right the whole time, I was like, okay, something sneaky's going on with Zuri. But I thought she was gonna like be bad i i it was, i didn't expect her to be extra good you know <laughs> so then did you guys expect when uh yoru sulfur came in that that it was all a trap that glockta had set for him with ishri or i keep saying ishri zuri and her brothers i didn't expect that either i was like oh crap what are they gonna do against uh yoru sulfur like he's always you know he's he's always there he's always like talking I thought he was going to do something when Sabine had him escorted out of the solar society. Mm-hmm. And she's like thinking so smugly, Oh, I've won. I've won. And then he just kind of lets himself be thrown out. And then later on, I guess he was just waiting for the right moment to use his eater abilities, but blocked out. Thank out thought him there. Glocked yeah. out thought everyone. He, he was the weaver at least for now. Yeah, I knew we had a plan, but I was not, foreseeing that he had been amassing an army of eaters but it's one of those twists <laughs> that it's like it makes perfect sense it's like that's what bias did and it's like why wouldn't he get his own eaters and there's plenty of eaters that hate bias so it's was something i wasn't expecting i was still kind of recovering from more so at the time and uh yeah they just hit you with like a full-on eater battle at the end and i think abercrombie you know has been saying magic's leaving this world and all of that stuff, but to, but to bring it back at the end and remind you that it's still there. It, it, it's a wonderful element of world building. That is the first law. It's like, there's still magic here, even though it doesn't seem like it, and it may not always be used for good purposes, but there are still leaders. There's still magic in the world. And there's that, you know, bitter irony of the fact that all the burners thought zuri was an eater and she actually was so yeah you know all that all that beautiful stuff wrapped together it's like abercrombie's come such a long way 10 books later and like the amount of layers that come into play and weave into these big reveal moments at the end it's pretty impressive well it sounds like a lot of you guys a lot of both you guys and other people suspected this twist and i didn't and i'm kind of glad i didn't because it was just so, such a jaw-dropping moment. I knew there was something in the last act that was going to happen with Zuri, but I thought it was going to be more nefarious than it turned out to be. Mm-hmm. I didn't, would never expect that she was an eater. Well, I would have believed it, but. <laughs> so is Zuri Ishri? She didn't confirm it, but yes. Did she I have, think I so. can't remember if there were any details about her arms having wraps on them. Cause didn't she wrap her arms, uh, Ishri? Yeah, she was like covered in, in bandages. I don't, don't remember if it was her arm specifically, but in, in The mm. Trouble with Peace, after the battle, she's like helping Sabine or something. And Sabine notices that she has some bandages, but that, oh. but that she wasn't injured. Got okay. it. So, yeah. Okay. And then, all right. I just remembered another thing. Do you remember when Sabine is really worried about Zuri after she's captured and then she sees Zuri again and she talks about how Zuri has some strange markings on her hands and she's like oh what what torture would have caused that so do you think that's related to her being an eater or that's just that was just some 
byproduct of being tortured. I feel like it was just torture. I think that was a misdirect. Okay. Could have been torture. Could have been like maybe that the wrappings were taken off or something so you could see her hands. I, I, I'm Although, not too read up on my Ishri lore. <laughs> the, uh, the, the torturing really must have been toned down since the time that Glockta left because to just have little pinpricks on your fingers is a lot better than not having fingers at all, yeah. which was yeah. most torture in the previous right. regime. For sure. I think they were busy, you know, like raiding the city and just being crazy people <laughs> that, that they weren't like methodically torturing somebody. Yeah, I, th- I think I did go too much onto theory land, Ryan, in that one. And I, I saw that one coming. And uh, I made this little video beforehand, which you can find on, on our YouTube channel, where I talked about, okay, what do I think is going to happen in the wisdom of crowds? And it's laughably bad. Like so many of my predictions are way off. But this is the one thing that I thought was going to happen was there <laughs> that Zuri was going to be revealed and there was going to be some kind of eater conflict. I don't think that I necessarily said that mm. Zuri versus Sulfur was going to happen, but uh, I'm glad it did. That was like the one thing that I thought would ha- thought might happen and did happen. Everything else has way off. Wow, that's a good prediction, though. And it's such yeah. a good idea from Glockba to do that as well. And honestly, up until it happened, I was reading this book and I had this thought of like, is this even fantasy, really? Like, I love the book. <laughs> is this fantasy? Like, is this in the genre? Like, there's no magic. They talk about Magi. I know previous books mm-hmm. have had magic, but there's no magic in this book at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. And, you know, they've made it a point, even beginning with the beginning of the first law trilogy where Baez is like magic is leaving the world you can't speak to the spirits anymore like that was a huge part of the first book and then that is you're being constantly but subtly reminded of that as the trilogy plays out and then he works in this whole theme of industrial revolution into this trilogy Mm -hmm. and that's kind of the whole point and to bring it all back at the end with the Eater conflict, and then ending with Baez planning his revenge is, you know, pretty fascinating. And, and then when I did speak to Abercrombie, he's like, you know, I always thought what it would be like to have a world where magic suddenly returns into the world because there's so many books where magic leaves the world, but he, he was toying around with the idea of Ooh, bringing magic okay. back. That's something we may see in the not too distant future. Well, the prophecy at the end of the book. Yeah, yeah. Right. Let's let's that was go my there. shocking moment. Before <laughs> I before I do my unexpected thing, let's let's talk about the prophecy and let's talk about Baez and what we can expect next. Yeah, yeah. Cause I asked I asked Joe, I was like, so are we gonna get like a sci-fi book in the first are we gonna get like first law in space? Uh, where where is this like going? Mistborn? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, where is this going? And he's like, Well, I always thought about writing a more modern setting where magic comes back. And you can kind of see hints of that with this ominous prophecy of Baez uh, having new pupils who are going to come into the world and do crazy dangerous destructive things but what I this was my kind of shocking moment I guess my it would be this very end with Ricca and having this prophecy because I remember I'm like I'm almost done with this book and nothing has been resolved and I remember having like that same feeling when I was reading the end of the first law trilogy i was like i feel like there's so much to go to resolve this conflict but i'm on the last couple of pages 
And I just, I just loved it because it's the idea like, look, this crap is never going to stop. It's just always going to be, we're always going to make the same mistakes and have to learn our own lessons. And there's always going to be conflict, but that doesn't mean you can't enjoy the good moments when they're here and appreciate them and, you know, do good things when you can. And even if they're small things, just that little bit of good that you can bring into the world uh, is very meaningful. And what I liked about this trilogy is there was actually get a lot of good got to be injected instead of just a little. Like, I feel like Glock was like, I made a compromise with Baez and maybe I can do stuff at the end of the first law. And now he's got Baez out of the equation of the union completely. So mm-hmm. it definitely has a really nice fun. Yeah, exactly. But it's, it, it was still yeah. shocking, but I, I loved it. I was like, Oh man, bias playing this whole thing. The end. Okay. <laughs> like why not? So that was well, my, loved it. The whole thing with the last prophecy. I mean, so bias is kind of, doesn't he say that he took the we the weaver from a different person, the title of weaver from a different person. I feel like people keep saying that. Or maybe it the, was Pike. The Weaver was when Jazal was negotiating, like when he came back from that Fellowship of the Seed. I was like, oh, okay. there's this guy out here. He's leading a rebellion. I'm pretty sure that's the Weaver, isn't it? And that was actually um, one no, of No, no, that's the, that's the Tanner. Oh, the Tanner. Yeah, that's, that was. I thought that and was and the Sulfur Weaver. Was... <laughs> yeah, and that was Sulfur. Hmm. Ah, well, I misplaced it then. I sure. mean, P- Pike says that he was just assuming the mantle of weaver for glockta is that what you're thinking okay. ryan okay uh, so i mean we see from Rika's vision that glockta has coined himself the weaver but Baez is the yes. original weaver and or the real weaver or the real the weaver i don't know he's he's the weaver he's he's now the weaver and mm-hmm. and we see that he's weaving things with the uh cleft lip uh son of black calder or we assume, I mean, that's not confirmed, but that is a theory. I mean, well, they say his, he's Stowers' half-brother. So, Did they directly say that? Yeah. Okay. I don't have I my might copy have, on me to check, but so I remember I, I something have, like I that. I might have missed it, the exact, I mean, I thought it was because it, I thought it was ambiguous, but then Calder ends, like the last thing he says to Rick, it was oh, like, you think you've won, like you don't know everything. Yeah. You know, Oh, so you don't see everything. Yeah. Implying that implying that there was something more which would have that been was a such son. a great moment for Calder as well because Calder is always such a such a schemer always testing and even in facing his death he was able I love that line yeah. you know <laughs> there's so many good parts of of this book um so just back to the prophecy really quickly so we see that the uh Baez is busy weaving once again and um mm-hmm. Hildy is going to be the new mastermind between behind Valent and Bulk, um, and this other Cleflip uh, boy, who we're not exactly sure of the lineage, is going to be his next um, person, who's I guess going to try and conquer the North. He has Shiver's sword, which is also the Bloody Nine sword. So at some point, he's which either is, going which to is kill the Maker's sword. Yeah, which is the the sword that sh- doesn't Shivers get it from the house of the Maker? He doesn't he get it from Shivers gets it from Logan. Logan? Yeah, from Logan. Or uh, sorry, I mean doesn't Logan get it from the house yes. of the Maker? It, it was gifted by Baez. 
Okay. No, the, yeah, he doesn't get it. The, he doesn't the, get it from the maker. I don't at think. the Northern Library, right? He gets it at the library. The the location where Baez was at at the very end of Wisdom mm-hmm. of Cuts, where he was with these two pupils of his. Okay. Yes. So, anyway, so we see that Baez is scheming. Everybody thinks they've beaten Baez, especially because they killed Sulfur. So they're sitting pretty pretty high in their chair but in the next books i'm guessing bias is gonna strike back um but the other thing is you know that ominous thing i don't i don't know if you guys listen to the audio book but um you have the so stephen pacey does this very dark voice that's like i have returned and yeah that's got to be is it gustrod who's uh the person who the like emperor. sided with <laughs> could be because he's wasn't it like that this this person this this being has returned from like below the earth or yeah. out of the ocean or something like that yeah so it's like in the circle or whatever um i need to, i need to look up yeah so glustrad was this youngest son of the almighty Eus. he was the um, demon guy yeah, he was granted no gift from his father apart from his blessing. He harbored a bitter resentment towards the brothers and toward mm-hmm. Juven especially. He allied with demons on the other side and made war on the old empire. So I think it's Glustrad, this this guy who they thought mm-hmm. is beaten, but now he's coming back. The Could demons are going to be a threat again. And maybe this is going to bring some magic back into the world. It's a good theory. It's a good I theory. I don't know. I mean, I, anything goes at this point, and it's always been a part of the first law, but it's never been a central part. It's always been used as a misdirect or a farce. Mm-hmm. So it wouldn't be that crazy to think that Abercrombie would come full circle on that and make it reality. So who knows? So is this the reason why Baez really didn't do much in this? Like, I kept on expecting him from the very beginning. Well, really from the point where the breakers and burners burned down the Valentin bulk office, I was like, oh man, they messed up here. They, they poked a sleeping bear. This is going to be really bad. Baez is coming in like he did in mm-hmm. last argument of Kings, mm-hmm. but he never did. This was like the, the shoe that was supposed to drop and it never did. And like, yes, he schemed a little bit. Yes. He sent sulfur around and, and none of it went very well, but I kept on expecting him to show up at the, at the Lord's round and just destroy everyone. And it did nothing. Is it because his magic is gone? That's a part of it. You know, I asked Dylan this very same question on our last first law discussion, which I think was a little hatred. And there's also this part where Baez is a very patient guy. And he's like, you guys are like ants to me. And so I think he allows conflict to a certain extent. Like he would let Brock and Calder fight each other, even though they're both in Baez's pocket. Right. So it's like, that was my question. Like, why are the, why is Baez letting these two fight each other? It's like, aren't, aren't they on the same side? But I think his involvement is usually pretty minimal. And then I think Glocked up, hold a fast one on him it's hard to think that that would be the case but um to buy as this might just be a setback in a much longer game that goes past the lifespan of a of a human being or this of this trilogy you know he's like oh 100 years i'll be back you know just playing the long game <laughs> yeah and i think you're you're pretty right steven is that magic has been dying and so Baez's mm. ability to affect the world directly 
has is is very limited and so the way that he's gotten around that is he has all these indirect means i think the major ones are valentin bull Mm -hmm. so he he gives he loans money to who he wants to win and the money kind of wins the war for them and then also yoru sulfur is his other way that he he kind of sends yoru to try i guess or is the one who's always extending the loans um mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and he's good muscle too yeah he's an eater <laughs> and um so he there isn't too many ways that he can directly affect it other than that and i think the most direct that he's been was like assembling people in w- when he originally got pharaoh and logan and giselle all together and installed giselle as the king and then like helped uh, defeat the Gurkish invasion um, and then other than that he's been hands off and now he's kind of trying to do the same thing with Hildy and um, this other protege so he's I feel like he's getting ready to do some to to move himself directly into mm. things so he's he's just hit the reset button at this point yeah I mean uh, Glockta kind of forced him to do that right yeah with, yeah with destroying Valentin Bulk and kind of eliminating probably most of the people that Baez had control over. Just eliminated most of the people. It seems yeah. like there's not many left <laughs> of the big people anyway. Yeah, I can buy that. that and, and that's a very good point that, that uh, Baez plays the long game. And so while as the reader, I'm thinking like Baez just, just totally got whooped here. Maybe in Baez's mind, he's like, yeah, you know, lost this round, but I'm going to outlive all these people anyway. So what's the big deal? Hmm. So here's a question that I had. I mean, it's called the first law. And the first law is that you're not supposed to eat other people, right? Touch the other side direct. Yeah. The oh, second okay. law is, is don't eat. The first okay. law is, is don't, don't talk to the demons. <laughs> okay. All right. Then, um, well, my question was, I mean, these have got to be laws for a reason, right? But it seems like nobody's really interested in in keeping the laws, at least the second law. Everybody's like, it seems like that's now that magic's going away, the the way you make yourself stronger is to become an eater. Yeah, and Baez Baez doesn't care about the laws at all. He has this fantastic line at the end of the first law trilogy where he goes, the only crime is to lose. So he'll do anything. He does mm-hmm. not care. So, and maybe he's invoking these, you know, he, he like he has eaters, even though he has championed like, oh, eating is this horrible, vile thing that the Gurkish yeah. do and the and Kalul does because he's evil. But meanwhile, he's done it the whole time. He doesn't really care. He's just pushing a narrative on his enemy. So he's right. probably poking with these forces for sure. And will that be a consequence in future works? Maybe. Yeah. Well, I mean, the consequence to breaking the first law seems obvious. The demons aren't really to be trusted and like you let them into the world and they just mm-hmm. screw everything up. So there's got to be some consequence to becoming an eater, right? Otherwise, I mean, other than just the, it's morally wrong to eat other people. You can't argue with the results though. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so we've had this thought for a while that, that Baez himself could be an eater. Right. It's, it's not too subtle at the end of the heroes, especially when they're sitting outside the, all the graves mm-hmm. and he's eating his, his meat right there. Right. <laughs> yeah. But maybe, maybe that is, maybe that is indeed just a big misdirect on 
on Abercrombie's part and Spies isn't because you think, I don't know, maybe he's playing the long game, but, but, you know, maybe if he had that ability, the, the eater power, I mean, it doesn't seem like the eater power is leaving the world that those eaters are still just as strong as they used to be. Maybe the, the bias magic power is not as strong as it used to be. I think Baez is setting his sights a little higher. We've seen him use the seed in combination with magic in combination with things from the maker. And like, he's trying to touch though. He wants to be greater than Aos. So he's to him an eater is just another tool. Maybe he has Mm. dabbled in that magic. Perhaps I wouldn't be surprised, but it might almost be beneath him at some level. He'd probably just prefer other people do it. And he's pursuing these higher feats of magic and finance also <laughs> so let's just say i, I like love that. his character i love bias he's, he's just like a great i mean a person who you think almost through the entire first trilogy is like a good guy and then at the end of it you're like uh maybe this guy's not that good <laughs> and then in the standalone books you're like no this guy's probably not good and then now you're like eh, he's definitely not good <laughs> i just love how his his like all powerful malevolent force is balanced by his absolute pettiness at the same time. Like here's someone who like has lived forever, who knows everything. Who's like the most powerful guy in the world. And he's also so petty at the same time. It's, it's, it's great. I love it. He's, he's always bragging and he's always like talking down to people and he's always like, I'm greater than everyone. It's, mm-hmm. it's like, dude, give it a rest. There were a lot of really good moments that call back to previous moments and the ending with him at the the Great Northern Library was one. I like that Clover saw him and thought that he was a woodcutter, kind of like when Logan thought that he was the butcher. Mm -hmm. Uh, Both can be dangerous, uh, right? But uh, he just fits the role that convenient. Yeah, yeah. And And then on the other side, Glockta, who has now kind of become the thing that he set out to destroy, has the same kind of conversation with Vic uh, with, uh, across at the squares board, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so many little callbacks and and uh, Abercrombie loves that kind of stuff. And and so do I, I'm, I'm a very organized person and I really like these types of things. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I like when you can tell that this world has changed and that the themes have changed because with Vic, that's such a great moment too. And it's one that I've championed as someone that's watched a lot of movies and read a lot of fantasy books. I'm like, why doesn't this guy just stay home? Like, wouldn't it be so much better if half these guys just like sat by the river and didn't do anything all day? Like why go through all of this? And you, which helps you kind of relate to someone like Clover, who, even though he does horrible things, I love his ending where he just sits down by the water and he's like, finally, like, this is my life goal. And then someone like Vic, who's just like, no, I don't want to be a part of this. This is, I refuse and walks away. And I mean, that's kind of how far we've come from the first law trilogy. The point now where it's like trying to do the best with what you have. And maybe the political theater isn't, everything and it's more of a farce than we thought and the, the, making your own moments is everything and yeah you know, walking away from the game is a very valid option that you have available to you as a human being so i i i loved it i loved Vic's ending not many people survive long enough <laughs> to walk away <laughs> yeah it's certainly a privilege in the first law world maybe logan is somewhere he 
he survived and, and walked away. Maybe he was just walking off to his to some <laughs> random death in a ditch somewhere. But he keeps saying he walks away, but I don't buy it. That guy is addicted to violence. Did you guys get really strong Logan vibes from Broad's viewpoints? I always thought he was Logan Jr. Yeah, <laughs> it's it, it was it was reading him. I was just like, man, this is just like Logan. He's like. Oh, I'm going to do better. I'm going to do better. And then he falls back. Yeah, I think it was a more transparent take on Logan. Um, This idea that we say we're good people and we say that we're heroes and then we do horrible things. And it's like just there's not evil people that going around committing horrible acts. Like horrible acts can be committed by people who aren't trying to be. And that's such a complex world that Abercrombie goes into and one of the things I wish I had asked him and never did was his thoughts on redemption because you have characters like can Broad be redeemed does that even mean anything in his world Mm -hmm. and can Logan be redeemed like these are people that killed their friends killed children did horrible horrible things but yet we still find them very relatable and we don't consider them evil by any means so can you commit an act as horrible as as murder and and still be forgiven it Mm. it seems like some of these characters do get away with it like logan gets to ride off into the sunset uh, even though he estranges his adopted family Uh, broad he, he has to leave his family but he he's secretly kind of excited about it and so you're like what what what's going on with these people and i I think the whole idea is options are false yeah Gorst died feeling like he redeemed himself yeah wasn't the name of that chapter redemption or something yep yeah but Gorst is interesting because he always did kind of feel guilty and he always was self-loathing and he never lied to himself about who he was characters like broad and characters like logan were are you could say are in denial about their the horrible acts they commit the stories they tell themselves was like oh man if if my wife ever comes back i'm just gonna stay with her and never do these horrible things again and then he lasts what <laughs> two seconds <laughs> same yeah. thing with logan it's like oh like leave the fighting to people dumb enough to do it like me it's like you could just stay with pharaoh right now and not go off and, and settle scores in the north you know so it's like whereas uh poor Gorst, he he always hated himself and and saw through his hypocrisy and it was uh finry who called him out on it so directly and i don't think he's recovered from that and he's always like tell your mother she always had a great judge of character <laughs> or like you know she was always a valued her opinion or whatever he kept saying about her it's because he knows it's true i remember in your interview though charles you did ask him something about or somehow you got on the topic of like can people change and mm. I don't remember exactly what Joe said, so I, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he, he seemed to be a little cynical about this idea and, and seemed to think that, you know, while people can change, he was a bit wary of these large stories of, of these huge, like, mm. twists in people's uh, core being. Yeah, one of his things that he was talking about that I think Dylan and I both kind of caught on to and really loved about the first law, but never really, like, pinned it down was this idea of characters learning their lessons and then unlearning their lessons. And he made this point of mm-hmm. like, yeah, when when you lose weight, you don't lose it for good. Sometimes you put the weight back on and you go back and forth. And actually, we got to talking about his psychology background 
when he was getting his bachelor's in psychology and he actually wrote his whole thesis on failure and how people react to to failure and he said he was always fascinated in things going wrong and this idea of characters unlearning their lessons and then this world where everything just goes to catastrophic failure like he, he just loves putting his characters in these moments and like the fellowship of the seed for example when the, that quest was a failure and he's like you know sometimes people it's hit or miss for people, but it's something that always has fascinated him as an author. And it, and it, it makes, I'm like, how am I not surprised that you're the one, right? You wrote your thesis on mm-hmm. failure. Mm-hmm. Like these books are so depressing. Everyone fails in these books, but there's something fascinating about it. Like how normal people react to catastrophic failure. You have to face it somehow, but it's so absurd at the same time. Okay. So Leo had a catastrophic failure at the end of The Trouble with Peace. We haven't talked about him much. He's he's a big character. He had a really big character shift, I thought, in this book where he basically went from muscle-brained idiot in the first two books to this savvy and really evil politician by the end of The Wisdom of Crowds. So what was your guys' take on Leo? Because personally, I thought the shift was like maybe a little abrupt, but it needed to be in order for the plot to play out the way that the plot needed to. So like Leo had to become this, you know, he had to get in this situation. I I guess I just wish there was like more time. With Glockta, you have, you know, his crippling disability making him so cynical and evil over years. And it seems so natural that he's, that he sat with this forever and he turned into the man that he was. Leo seemed a little fast to me. I'm not gonna lie, this was not, this, this was a, a bit of a criticism I had of the book. Yeah, uh, and I don't know. I think things were accelerated by him being betrayed by Rika. Yeah, and... the, the action, the events definitely accelerated. So that I think that would be the explanation that I would buy. Yeah, um, I hated him. I mean, I thought he was oh, yeah. fairly well written. But when he killed Orsa, I was just like, oh, man, Leo, you are going to die someday yeah but, um, i'm team or so all the way he he so he's just so frustrating and i i feel like you see him especially with uh like savine where where he's like oh i should want to save my wife and then he's like putting on a brave face but really he's just like you know i just kind of want to be in power i, I just want to be out fighting people with like people at my command and mm-hmm. i want to be trampling over people with my horse and then i want i want to be painted making it look so yeah. heroic that's such a great way to write that scene i loved it yeah <laughs> and, and so he's he's just i guess be, becoming the evil corrupt core of adua which the great change was trying to fix it, it's ironic because the great change almost changed him into what it was trying to change people out of Mm. Mm. yeah that's a good point and you know i he he learned some lessons and he's not he's no glockta by any means even still like he's totally clueless that this stuff is going on behind the scenes he's slowly learning i think um and he had to be embarrassed quite a bit he had to be defeated quite a bit and he had to be like like half his body had to get blown off for him to like even begin to piece together that he needs to start figuring stuff out for himself and maybe practice a little caution. 
And even towards the end, he was still losing debates with his wife and couldn't get a grip on the council. And I think that's why he's been resorting to some of these more ruthless tactics, because he doesn't have the patience or the mental agility to be like a Glock type or even to keep up with Savine. But what he does have over Savine is the ability to be ruthless and use brute force, which Savine has never been capable of doing. So he's like, oh, you think you can like sneak around and like let Orso escape and, and pretend you don't know and have all these secret meetings. Well, I'm just going to, you know, go find them and hang them. And then I'm going to tell all your <laughs> friends if they don't do what I say, I'm going to kill them. And I got you know, that that kind of trumps political maneuvering every time, at least for now. So if you have yeah. the power. To do yeah, it, then it exactly. Does. So I think we see some of that pettiness in him and that w- willingness to make up for some of that lack of cleverness with the use of shocking, abrupt force. And that's almost like a bad lesson that he's learned because he wants to be the king. And that's the way he has to go about it. Like he's not as clever as Orso or Savine. He, he has to be able to find some other way. He's got his likability. People will do what he says. And then he'll have no problems hanging his wife's brother slash lover. I don't know. So it's it's crazy. (laughs) I mean, he did lose a lot of his naivety and Mm -hmm. um, he, he, I think he's capable now of deception and political maneuvering as we saw with turning, um, turn, uh, killing uh, forest and, and kind of taking control and um, at that, that critical, uh, change of power mm-hmm. I, I could my i was that was probably the most surprising thing that, that was yeah. a surprising moment mm-hmm. that's true that was when a Orso great s- made a grab for the throne right there that was pretty shocking yeah that that's that is another surprising part um he, so he's obviously not as um not as adept at it as his wife savine or Glock does. she totally outmaneuvers him with the closed council but at the end of the day, he's just kind of like a baby, right? Like he doesn't get his way and he realizes that Savine has outmaneuvered and beat him. Mm-hmm. And like he, he did get, um, he did kill Orso, but Savine is just, you know, so ruthless to him after that. And he like basically starts crying in the close council. He's like, is, is this what is going to like, so, <laughs> so now like, wh- what do I do? Like, I, I can't do anything. And she's like, <laughs> oh my gosh, like thinking to herself like this is really pathetic of Orso or of Leo and and it's it, it's frustrating that Leo won and killed Orso because um you're like Orso would have been so much better for the nation and um but the one thing that he said that was I, I think really chilling to me as a reader was like like he says to Savine if you really wanted Orso to live like you could have you know you weren't begging like you were sad you were crying that orso died but you knew that it had to happen for us to become in, to stay in power that conversation and, was fantastic that mm-hmm. ending yes keep on going ryan and well i mean that's kind of what it was chilling to me because i felt like savine was like on a like a, she was almost redeeming herself becoming like i i thought she was doing these things for maybe I was tricked, but I thought she was doing like these things out of um, just uh, purely for the good uh, that she was kind of sick of. And and maybe she was at first, like um, after she had just given birth, but then she just starts to slip into her old ways. And by the end of 
by the end of the book, you know, she's back to her ruthless self. I think she's learned some lessons on how to make herself appear more likable with um, using like the media and Spilly and Swarbrick. Mm -hmm. But that was chilling because I realized that like, you know, Savine is, she hasn't really changed for the better. Yeah, we talked about characters unlearning their lessons. Mm -hmm. Savine's kind of a compromise in some way. I feel like she, if she could have come up with a way to save Orso, she may have rolled the dice on it. But once she realized he was walking towards the gangplank, she knew there was nothing she could do. And she went with it, which is such a cold, brutal thing to do. But she did go with it when she saw there was no other alternative. And Orso even says, I don't blame you for it. You know, it's what it is. And Savine has always been trying to figure out where the line is for things for for things like this she's trying to discover her own morality and Mm -hmm. she's never quite pinned it down she tries to do good things she she tries to do horrible things like she's betrayed or so and then saved him a bunch of times and it's trying to figure it out and there's no good answer and it was like you said that conversation was so like when leo calls her out on it granted she didn't really have a choice at that point but she could have at least said something in defiance and she didn't. She, she saw the cards on the table and went with the winning side. She didn't deny it. Yep. So, I mean, we see so many characters, I think, change for the worse. At least <laughs> they realize that being good isn't getting them anywhere or won't get them back, won't get them further. And we see that with another very surprising moment with Rika, where she ultimately betrays Orso to his death. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that was my second very surprising moment when, um, I mean, she used her own prophecy to like, as the justification to bring that moment to pass where she was like, I now realize that I, I am the owl and you're the lamb. And so that's, that's kind of why she, or I think that's how she justified it to herself turning in or so. Were there any characters besides Orso who you feel like changed for the better? One final, one final note on Savine. I got I got to do one more okay. note on Savine because okay. I. <laughs> Stephen's yeah. got to say his yeah. piece one, on Savine. <laughs> one more, yeah. So I, I've had, I've had a crush on her for way too long. It's, it's unhealthy. But, um, anyway, I <laughs> thought a dangerous that pick, friend. Very it dangerous. is. It really is. <laughs> uh, but the, the line from her that really summarized her character is when she said that if she had to do it again, she would not change anything. Also, I mean that that summarizes her character. She. While she saved Orso the one time, the second time she's like, well, you know, saved you once, man. Can't do it again. And at this point, I got to kind of stick with my guns. So there we go. There's realistic about these things. Got to be realistic. Ryan, you you were asking for Rika specifically or more characters that surprised? Um, No, I I mean, my question was, so we've talked a lot about characters um, failing to become better and ultimately becoming worse. And um, that leads me to feel like if if Orso had survived and stayed king, he would have been a king just like his dad. You know, the way that Joe Abercrombie mm-hmm. would have written him was that he would have had all of these like noble ideas and then yeah, not really yeah. been able to implement any of them and kind of being a weak and effective ruler who gives into a lot of his vices. But he did. It. So I guess that is knowing that 
or believing that, then maybe it was that or good that Orso died at at the point in his character <laughs> arc where he couldn't have fallen back into his old ways. Anyways, my question was, was there anyone who you felt changed for the better? Uh, I'd say Vic for walking away from the whole thing was a good okay. improvement. Yeah, and yeah. I would say Rika did she she didn't she betrayed Orso out of duty to her people. And she's been trying to learn this lesson to make her heart a stone, to be an effective leader. And when you talk about ruthlessness, and this is juxtaposed against the conversations that, uh, well, not juxtaposed, it's directly compared against the conversations that Leo and Savine are having about ruthlessness and leadership. And then you've even seen it with the burners. And it's this idea that this was a lesson that Rick has been having to learn her, her whole career as a political figure and she sees the cards on the table and she recognizes there's no advantage to saving Orso and there's everything to gain from giving him up and even though she may have feelings for him or like him or whatever it doesn't do the fact that she could with one death put the whole north in this time of peace and she makes that choice and it's a sacrifice almost for her country to do something like that. And that idea of making your heart a stone was something that she fully learned, I think, with that action. And then she was able to allow her people to enjoy a time of peace, even though she had all these prophetic visions of absolute doom, you know, she's willing to make these sacrifices. And to me, that makes her perhaps the, the best leader we've read so far. And it also, it's like, she actually got her people to have this moment of like peace and celebration, which no leader has been really able to do <laughs> except maybe um, uh, what's her face Dog from Man. best serve cold uh, Dogman a little bit, but they were Monza. always at war. Mons Mercato. Yeah. They were able to have some sort of amnesty, but they're always at war because they're but, springtime in uh, Styria time yeah. for war. Exactly. So is really like the one moment of true peace we really get in like the whole series besides the beginning. And Ag- I have no additional characters to offer past what Charles, <laughs> no one else got better. They're all terrible people. <laughs> yeah. They've yeah. all done some pretty horrible things, but at least Vic got, had the decency to walk away. I don't know. I was, so the, the one comment I had with Vic's ending was that I think she's been fed up with people lying to her and deceiving her and her trying to find a way in Adjua. And she's realized that like, even though people say things are going to get better there, that they really aren't. But then her favorite book is like uh, tales of the far country or something like that by, Uh by Dabo sweet. But didn't we read that in Red Country that Dabo Sweet like embellished just like a ton of his oh, stories? It's all, oh yeah, yeah, it's all lies. Yeah. So yeah. so is it is it she at the end of the book? She's just chasing another lie. Well, she knows that too. She's like, this is all crap. But it's the hope of you know, she for the first time in this book allowed herself to believe in a cause which she never allowed herself to do until this moment, and she firmly believed in or so and bringing back a stable government and she was willing to no longer side with the winner and actually hope and believe in something. And then of course it got totally 
stomped out Leo, betrayed them the minute that he could. And I think she was just disillusioned by the whole process. And she's finding hope in this idea of like adventure out in open country, like a new start, something that can't, hasn't been corrupted yet. And she's searching for that. Okay. Which may be a fool's hope, but what else is she going to do? Play poly, play the Glockter role? And <laughs> what else? Yeah. What else is she going to do? The gra- She's got to go for the grasping greener somewhere. You got to have. I, it's like it's like me hoping that someone will have a happy ending in these books. Yeah. <laughs> no matter how many times I learn my lesson, I, I keep on hoping. I feel yeah. like the dog man had the happiest of endings. Yeah, he died a peaceful death with, you know, a ripe old age. Yeah, decent situation around him. Yeah. Yep. Everyone liked him. Yeah, a ton he of people came to his funeral. Stick to his virtues pretty much the whole time. Didn't they say like the measure of a man is is how quickly uh, and how how terribly things fall apart once he is gone? <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, <laughs> I don't fully remember, but yeah, yeah. Dogman's a stand-up guy, great character, one of the truest fellows there was. Last thing, we're we're running way low on time, but last thing is uh, low-key MVP or like most interesting character, at least from this book, was Judge, who really mm-hmm. emerged as like a crazy but also like pretty awesome villain running the dark knight rises crazy wacko <laughs> people's court right those scenes were so great yeah that was yeah. a long part of the book i'll say like the one it's like this whole um great change chunk that we got i was like okay well where are we going uh, that 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 may be my one thing that i wanted to move you on thought from maybe faster. that plot element was like repeated too much we were maybe, there was always uh, another trial yeah there's always another trial like we the, the place is in turmoil like we get it we get it we get it um yeah but i mean i think that was a huge part of this book was to drag it on so i wouldn't change anything but i personally was like i'm ready to move so like when that scene like you described at the tower happened i was like this is exciting finally um so, finally built yeah. to something yeah yeah, yeah. exactly i i she's a great character it's true this the mock courts were interesting and again i knew when it was called wisdom of crowds that it certainly wasn't going to be serious it was definitely going to be like this is what happens when you just like let the masses try and decide things it's just pure hysteria and chaos i just remembered one other great moment was when joe just completely mocked the constitution or or was it the constitution or the (laughs) Declaration of Independence. These facts. Yeah, the Declaration of Independence. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Like that sounds terrible. Don't write that. (laughs) Yeah, it's a bit cheeky, but it was funny. (laughs) Yeah, he's he's British. He's entitled to be able to do that, right? (laughs) Do you uh, still hold the opinion that you think that uh, Joe Abercrombie views himself as uh, yeah, maybe maybe not Billy and Swarbrick? That was my that a lot. That was my weird theory before that Abercrombie was writing himself into the story as Swarbrick, but now that Swarbrick went crazy evil, yeah, maybe not anymore. I was thinking I, the I, same I hope, thing, I Ryan. I was like, I wonder what Stephen, if Stephen's opinion on Swarbrick is going to change, because I do believe he was speaking through Swarbrick in Red Country, and he was literally speaking through Swarbrick in uh, Sharp Ends, but I, I think he's like gone a little bit off the reservation in wisdom of crowds yeah definitely (laughs) really hope Abercrombie thinks more of himself than who Swarbrick was he's like that's probably what I would do in (laughs) this like you know Batman 
Dark Knight Rises scenario. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we are out of time. Thank you so much, Charles. Thank you so much for being on the show. We will (laughs) not throw you in the circle yet. You are you are still safe, my friend. And somehow we did it. Thank you. We talked about all the characters. Well done, guys, with lead on that conversation. And thank you just so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to be on Phantology. Like I've said, I tell the same story every time I come on. You guys gave us our first break, and we're eternally grateful for that. Thank you for welcoming us into this community. We think you guys are awesome. It's always a pleasure to work with you guys. And any opportunity to collaborate, doors always open. These are always fun. Well, these are good friends to have. I I enjoy being the friends, the friends of the friends who are. We're all the friends, guys. That's the whole reveal. (laughs) We're all friends talking fantasy. That's right. (laughs) I could probably read a book like that right about now. (laughs) It's all just hug each other for a moment. (laughs) Uh, I haven't been able to start anything new since finishing. I, I, I don't know what to do with myself. Anymore. I'm reading Sword of Kaigen. I don't know what I'm doing to myself, but Wisdom of Crowds, the Sword of Kaigen's a bit much. <laughs> that is one I still want to get to. All right. Well, thank you so much for tuning in to another Phantology Plus Friends Talking Fantasy podcast. Mm-hmm. And if you find yourself in a situation where a bunch of people are running around, burning up the city, talking about the great change, probably just keep your head down, blend right in. Don't stick out or bad things will happen to you. That's my advice for you listeners. And we'll see you later. Bye. Adios.